the first video that really hooked me, it spoke to me personally, both as a new father at the time and uh, perhaps also as a, as a son of a deceased father. Uh, it was where you're talking about the relationship one has with his father. Um, can you please elaborate a little bit on that? Well, the proper role of a father, and a mother as well, although the roles aren't identical, I would say the, the proper fundamental maternal role is one of protection. And the reason for that is quite obvious, is that newborn infants need, above all, to be protected. The proper response to an infant's distress is, you're right and I'll take care of you right now, especially for the first nine months of life. There's no disputing that. Whenever the infant is upset, he or she needs to be dealt with as if that upset is justified. Yeah. But then as the infant matures, and even by the age of nine months, I would say, then that that has to be... that 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 interaction has to be made more sophisticated because the child has to be encouraged to take his or her place in the world. And I would say that encouragement is more on the masculine side of the, of the, of the duty distribution. And the father's fundamental role is to produce a bounded environment in which exploration can take place with an eye towards the encouragement of the child to develop more and more competence to push that development because and it's true for mothers and fathers that the end goal is to produce a person who's capable of operating autonomously in the world the father's role is to foster that sense of confident autonomy by by encouraging the child to push his or her limits mm -hmm. and like that role can be played by mother or father if it's a masculine role it doesn't have to be played by a man but it's it still tilts in that direction and so for example fathers are much more likely to engage in rough and tumble play with their kids which is very very good for them by the way and absolutely necessary and something to be completely encouraged rough and tumble play uh, yes. that is just fooling wrestling, around wrestling, wrestling with yeah them. yeah wrestling physical play because the kids learn well they learn all sorts of things it's like they learn to dance that's mm. the best way of thinking about it because a confident child understands the physics of play and you can see this even in such simple things as going into a park where there's a lot of dogs and the dogs that are well socialized are very good at acting out playfulness and you can tell the difference between a growling dog and a mean dog and a, and a frightened dog and a playful dog people are very good at making that distinction mm. and a playful dog knows how to move in a playful manner and so does a playful child and that attentive readiness to play is something that's fostered by those play fight interactions with fathers for example and that makes the kid r ready in a deep sense to engage with other children and it also sets the stage for a for a confident physicality in ad in in adolescence and in sexual relationships i mean really? and and so yeah because a lot of our wisdom is embodied when you when you wrestle with kids then they learn what hurts them and what doesn't. They learn how far they can be extended and stretched. They test the they, limits. They test the limits. They learn to trust because you throw kids up in the air and you catch them and you push them to the point where they're really excited. So they're right on the edge of fear, actually. The excitement pushes right to the edge of fear. Mm -hmm. and, but they learn. And then they also learn how they can interact with someone else physically and what's acceptable and where the limits of pain are and what's frightening and what can be sustained and how to take turns and all of that. And that's... It's not abstract, it's concrete, it's right in the body. Mm -hmm. And so 
So that's part of the father's role. But the fundamental paternal role is that of encouragement. And the encouragement is you can handle it, kid. Life is hard. It's going to come at you in all sorts of ways. You can accept that as a challenge. You can thrive. You can master it. And I'm behind you. Like I'm behind the, the best in you manifesting itself in the world. And that gives a kid a spine, you know, mm-hmm. metaphysically and physically. And so it's an unbelievably important thing to do. And fatherlessness is a catastrophe. Yeah. Like if you look at the epidemiological literature, the psychological literature, fatherlessness predicts all sorts of terrible outcomes. It's not good. And we've fallen into this idea in our society that fathers aren't necessary. It's like, and it's just a family that's run by single mother is just as good in, in the broad sense as a family with two parents. And it's simply not true. All the evidence suggests, now, that doesn't mean that there aren't single parents who are nobly raising their children, because there are. Mm. But in the aggregate, the two-parent family is a much better arrangement for children. So you said that uh, without the encouragement of the father, it's just as if uh, its spirit will be left outside the walls of civilization. Mm, mm, yes, well, that's, exa- that's exactly it, is that, you know, the father's role is to 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 note that the individual is capable of thriving in a difficult world and to put that message forward and to and to note that that's been the message of people who've been successful throughout history mm. and that each individual is capable of doing that at least to some degree and has no better bet that's the has no better alternative so you have been called YouTube's new father figure. Your, I mean, your advices, they, they are kind of fatherly. Is that something that comes with the territory of being a psychologist, or is this your well, own I would personal say both. touch? Well, it's both, both being a professor, at least in principle, and being a psychologist, a clinical psychologist, so I'm a, a hybrid of those two things. Mm-hmm. And I've, I was also trained, like I've read um, deeply in the clinical literature, psychoanalytic, existential, humanist, there's all sorts of different streams of clinical thinking, all of which have something uh, very valuable to offer, I would say. But I was trained technically as a behavioral psychologist, and one of the things that a behavioral psychologist is trained to do is to take a large problem and to break it down into units that are small enough to actually manage practically. And so I've always considered my teaching in that light is my goal is to take high-level abstractions and to break them down until they're practically applicable mm-hmm. and so I suppose so that that's that's both educational so that's the professorial side and psychologically meaningful so that's the clinical psychology side because clinical psychologists fortify the individual that's really their role mm-hmm. and to the degree that that's a fatherly role well partly that's a consequence of the fact that I have been a father, I still am, and that um, I'm of the age where that's an appropriate way of interacting with people. But it's also in the same category in some sense as like because the purpose of a father psychologically is to fortify the courage of his children. And so that's appropriate for me given the stage of the development of my career, for example. Uh, number five, do not let your children do anything that makes you dislike them. This has sort of been a through yep. line to at least the beginning part of our conversation. Yeah, well, the first thing is it's the monster thing, like the Beauty and Beast thing. You are not a good guy, and you will take revenge on your children if 
they misbehave. You think, oh no, I, I like my children. It's like, other people might not like them. Maybe they don't behave very well, you know. And you think you like them because you're a saint, but you're not. And you will take revenge on those children if they do things that make you dislike them. So, you're in the grocery store and you've got a four-year-old, and the four-year-old's pretty smart. And checking you out all the time. Like, pro poking <laughs> you and prodding you and seeing what's there. Because that's what little kids do. They're not that verbal. So, they're, they're, they're like, they, they, they have, you could compare their behavior in some ways to pack animals like dogs. Which is why they like dogs and get along with dogs. They understand each other, you know. And so, they're testing you out. So they have a temper tantrum in the store, and you don't know what to do about it. What you do, your kid has a temper tantrum in the store, you pick up the child, you go outside with them, you stand them up somewhere, and just let them have it. Let them have the temper tantrum. It's like, they'll get sick of it soon enough. Go somewhere boring and dull, and say, well, have at her, man. Then the kid's done, you say, we're going to stand right here till you decide that you're going to behave. The child knows what that means. It's like, you're going to behave, or we're just going to stand here. It's like, fine, okay, you don't do that. The child has a temper tantrum. It's the third one, you know, and you're embarrassed, you're turning red, everyone's sweating, everyone's looking at you like you're a horrible parent. It's like, really unpleasant. Think, oh, I love my child, I like my child. It's like, no, you don't. That's a lie. You go home, the kid's forgotten all about it, you know. They go in their room, they make a little drawing, they're all thrilled, they come out and show it to you. And maybe they did a really good job, you know? Maybe they're even a little guilty about having the damn tantrum. But you, man, you're not happy. And you think, yeah, that's nice. And you go back to whatever useless thing you're doing. And you think, I got that little bastard. Uh -huh. And you think, no, I wouldn't think that. It's like, yeah, wrong. You would. Wrong. Not only would you think it, you would act it out. And if you don't think that that's true, then you don't know yourself very well. And so you've got to think, that little kid is little and powerless. Well, not as powerless as you might think, but <laughs> fundamentally, you got the upper hand. And you've got the proclivity for tyranny deeply rooted in you. And so, you better be real careful around that child. I, I used to tell my kids, you know, when I was not in a good mood, say, like, it would be better if you were in your room. Mm -hmm. And they didn't mind. They knew what it meant, you know. They were very young, they could understand that. It's like, I, you're a fine kid, you know, pat, pat, pat. I'm not in a good mood. Things are likely to be unpleasant. Why don't you just go play in your room for a while? It's like, way they went. They knew how to play in their room. You know, because I didn't want them being around me when I wasn't being going to be a good guy. Yeah. And so, and kids, they, they know they can handle that, man. They can't handle lies. They can handle that sort of truth. No problem. And so, like, I, both my wife and I, we were very careful. It's like, when, when we're starting to not be happy with the kids, with one kid or the other. It was time to have a chat and figure out what it was that had gone off the rails and how we were going to fix it so that we were like thrilled to have that kid around. And that's the thing about kids is you can be thrilled to have them around. Not always. You're tired, you're hungover, like you've had a bad day, the kid's cranky. Like, I'm not saying this is utopia. It's not. That's not the point. The point is, though, you, you can manage your relationship with your kids, and you can have an honest relationship with them, and then it will be the best relationship with anybody you've ever had in your life. And I can say that with some certainty, because, like, I had a rough time with my daughter, because she was very, very, very ill for a long time. It was really bad, for mm -hmm. like seven years. It's still touch and go, but it was, she was in excruciating agony for two straight years, mm -hmm. which I can't believe she even did it, because like, three hours of pain, that's intense, that's rough. Two years, it's like, 
maybe you don't get through that, you know? Mm -hmm. But we had a good relationship during, and thank God, if, we, if our family hadn't been well put together by that point, it would have been, it would have taken tragedy and turned it into hell. And so we had a rough time for those years, and still it was good. You know, and that's saying something, because, well, she lost her hip and her ankle during that period. They were both replaced when she was 16, and so she was walking around on two broken legs for two years. It was wow. brutal. But, but, our fa like my son, for example, during that period of time, and like hats off to him, he was only 14. You know, when he wanted to be out with all his friends, he stuck around. He supported her. He never complained about it. He never complained about the fact that he didn't get the attention he should have got. He was there like a bloody rock. And, my, and his sister relied on him a lot, loves him to death, partly because of that. It's like, that was a good thing, and it was because of that foundation yeah. that we had laid, you know? And we, we wouldn't have got through that without yeah, that. It's powerful. I mean, I could even see it in your face, like the, the, just a slight change as you talk about it, because it's real. It was it's brutal, real. man. Like one night I went down to talk to her, and like the pain had driven her past the edges of her sanity. I could see that she was going to crack, and we were looking all over the world to find somewhere to get her ankle replaced fast, you know, because it degenerated very quickly, and the, uh, the, the surgeon that we had been talking to wanted to fuse it, and we weren't into that. We wanted to get a replacement, but they're rare, and anyways, I won't bore you with all the details, but yeah, it was, it was brutal, and in, in those situations, if your family is fractured, it's like you, you don't have the extra energy to deal with the fracturing. You've mm -hmm. you got to have had your ship in order, you know, when you're in stormy seas. It's almost so, like when, you know, it's like when grandma dies and then the family just goes crazy after that or that yeah, type of thing. Like, that. like it all starts coming out when exactly. there's a tragedy. Yeah. Well, that's it. That's how yeah. you see that. That's a great example. You see that a lot on a deathbed. Now, my, my, my wife's mother died of, of essentially of Alzheimer's. It was prefrontal temporal dementia. And she got it pretty young and degenerated over about 15 years. And her husband, he was a really extroverted party type guy. I have a lot of respect for him. I like him a lot. But uh, he wasn't the sort of stay home and tend to the needy type, you know. But when his wife got sick, man, he took care of her. It was, it was unbelievable. I just cannot believe how good he was at how patient. And her family just pulled together. And on her deathbed too, like her sister's a palliative care nurse and her, her other sister's a pharmacist. They've had some contact with the rough parts of life, you know. I was at their, her deathbed and like the family was together and one of the things that was so interesting about that was that they lost their mother and like that's horrible and it's a horrible way to die but it's so interesting because the bonds between them the 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 sibling bonds and the bonds with the kids and the father were tightened a lot after that mm -hmm. and so in some sense although there was something taken away and it wasn't trivial and I'm not being a Pollyanna about this they strengthened their damn family, and we spent more time with them, and we get along better, and it's like there was a compensation for it. And mm -hmm. so you think, well, what happens if you act nobly through a tragedy? Well, first of all, it's better than, than not doing it, right. but then you also increase the probability that whatever good might come out of it is going to come out of it. So, you know, you can take a tragic situation, and tragedy isn't hell. But you can make tragedy into hell, and then it's hell, and no one can stand that. You know how you tell your kid to uh, be a good sport? You say, don't, it doesn't matter whether you win or lose, it matters how you play the game. Okay, so I've been unpacking that in my lectures, because it's really, really complicated. It's like, 
You tell your kid that and they look at you and they think, well, what do you mean by that? Aren't I supposed to try to win? It's a soccer game. I'm, trying, I'm supposed to win. And you say, well, yeah, you're supposed to win, but it doesn't matter whether you win or lose. It matters how you play the game. You know that that's right, but you don't know how to explain it to your kid. You say, well, you want to be a good sport. Okay, so imagine this. This is how it works. And this is crucially important. So, first of all, <clears throat> life is not a game. Even a game is not a game. Because a game is, most of the time, a game is the beginning of a series of games. So let's say that you're on a soccer team. Well, there's winning the game, but the game isn't the issue. The game is the whole series of games. So maybe the game is winning the championship. And winning the championship and winning a game are not the same thing. And the reason for that is, well, maybe if you want to win a game, the best thing to do is to let your star player make all the moves. But if you want to win a championship, maybe the best thing is for your star player to do everything he or she possibly can to develop all the other team members. That's a different strategy. And the reason it's different is because it iterates across time. Okay, so I'll, I'll tell you a quick story. So when my kid was playing hockey, when, when he was about 12 or so, he was in the championship game, just at a local arena, you know. And uh, it was really fun to watch. The, the teams were pretty equal, which is something that you want, so that everybody can expand their skills while they're playing. And it was like five seconds to, to the end of the game and the other team made a breakaway and came down and the guy came down the ice and scored. It was a beautiful goal and it was 4-3 and that was the end of it, right? And on my kid's team, there was the kid who was the star and he was a pretty good hockey player. He came off the ice and he was very annoyed about what had happened. And he smashed his stick on the cement and was complaining about the refereeing and acting as if he'd been robbed. And his father came up and instead of saying, get your act together, kid, that's no way to display yourself after a loss. He said, oh yeah, man, you were robbed that the referees didn't ref right and, and you played the best and you should have won. And I thought, you absolute son of a bitch. You're ruining your son. And then the question is, why? Because his son was the star and was trying to win. Why was he ruining his son? Well, you're trying to train your son not to win the game. You're trying to train your son to win the championship. And so that's a series of games. But then life isn't the championship. Life is a whole bunch of championships. It's a whole sequence of them. And so what you're actually trying to train your son to do is to be a contender in the entire series. And the way you do that is by helping him develop his character. And the character is actually the strategy that would enable him to win the largest number of games across the largest possible span of time. And one way you do that if you're a kid is like, well, what do you want to do with your kid? You don't want to teach him to win. You want to teach him to play well with others, and that's to be reciprocal. So that means to try to win, but also to pay attention to, the, to, to developing the other people around him and not to put winning the game above everything at all times. So then he's fun to play with, and this is absolutely crucial. You, get, you, can, you can help your kid become fun to play with between the ages of two and the age of four. If your kid is fun to play with, then what happens? Kids line up to play with him. And adults line up to teach him. And if kids line up to play with him, then he'll have friends his whole life. And he'll be socialized and he'll be invited to many games, some of which he'll win, all of which he'll be able to participate in. And if he's fun to play with, then adults will teach him things. And then he wins at life. And so when you say to your kid, it doesn't matter whether you win or lose, it matters how you play the game. What you're saying is, don't forget, kid, that what you're trying to do here is to do well at life. And you need to practice the strategies that enable you to do well at life while you're in any specific game. And you never want to compromise your ability to do well at life for the sake of winning a single game. 
And there's a deep ethic in that, and it's the ethic of reciprocity in games. Part of the reason that we're so obsessed with sports is because we like to see that dramatized, you know? Like, the person we really admire as an athlete isn't only the person who wins. We don't like the narcissistic winners. They're winners, and that's a plus. But if they're narcissistic, they're not good team players, they're only out for themselves, then we think, well, you're a winner in the narrow sense, but your character is suspect. You're no role model, even though you're a winner. And it's because we're looking for something deeper. We're looking for that the manifestation of character that allows you to win across the set of possible games. And that's a real thing. That's a real ethic. It's a fundamental ethic. I think what you're pointing out that's very important is we're, we're searching for the person who's got it all nailed. Someone who tries their hardest but is also honest enough about the circumstances to not cry foul when it's gone the other person's mm -hmm. way yeah well that's part of resilience it's right like look yeah. you're not going to win it you're not going to you're not going to score on every shot right doesn't mean you shouldn't take the shots doesn't mean you shouldn't try to to hit the goal but part of part of being able to continue to take shots is to have the strength of character to tolerate the fact that that in that instance you weren't on top it's more trivial in games than it is in fights and it's also the response is much more negative to the from the fans if you lose a fight and complain about it it is it's ruthless there because they understand that you've made a, a huge character error yeah so why do you think it's more important in, in fights than it is in games why do you think it's because the consequences there? are so grave because you recognize that the high is much higher and the lows are much lower to lose a basketball game sucks but it's nothing like losing a fight there's no comparison it's okay, not so, even close. so what do you think it is that damages the fighter if he um, complains about losing, why is that a mistake? Why do the fans respond so negatively to that? Because they know. They know that you lost. They know that you're complaining for no reason and you're not a hero. They want you to be better than them. They want you to be the person that has the courage to step into a cage or a ring or wherever, wherever you, with whatever the format is you're competing and to do something that's extremely difficult. Mm -hmm. And when you do that, they hold you to a higher standard. Right, to lose with grace. Yes, and when you fall, especially if you were a champion, that is one of the most disappointing things ever, when a champion complains. Right. And, and it is, okay, so, the response so, okay. is horrific okay. from the audience. Okay, so that's a great example. So let's imagine, what does the person who loses something important with grace do? And the answer is fairly straightforward. He accepts the defeat and thinks, okay, what, what is it that I have left to improve that will decrease the possibility of a similar defeat in the future? Yes. Right? So, yes. So, so what he's doing is, because the great athlete and the great person is not only someone who's exceptionally skilled at what they do, but who's trying to expand their skills at all, at all times. Yes. And the attempt to expand their skills at all times is even more important than the fact that they're great to begin with because the trajectory is so important. More important in particular to the audience. It's extremely important right. to the audience because you are the, the person who's competing. You, you are expecting them to live out this life in a perfect way or in a much more powerful way than you're capable of. Yes, and so part of that is the skill because they yes. put in the practice, but part of that also is the willingness to push the skill farther into new domains of development with each action. And that's really what people like to watch, right? They don't like to watch a perfect athletic performance. They like to watch a perfect athletic performance that's pushed into the domain of new risk. They want to see both at the same time. Yes. You're really good at what you do and you're getting better. Okay, so you lose a match. 
which is not any indication that you're not good at what you do. You might not be as good as the person who beat you. But if you lose the match and then whine, what you've done is sacrifice the higher order principle of constant improvement of your own skills. Yes. Because you should be analyzing the loss and saying, um, the reason I lost insofar as it's relevant to this particular time and place is the insufficiencies I manifested that defeated me. And I need to track those insufficiencies so that I can rectify them in the future. And if I'm blaming it on you or the referees or the situation, then I'm not taking responsibility and I'm not pushing myself forward. And so then you also take the meaning out of it. Like one of the things I've been doing on my tour, people are criticizing me to some degree for saying things to people that are obvious. Well, first of all, it's not like I didn't bloody well know they were obvious. When I wrote those what rules, you, we, well, my, the rules in my book, for example, stand up straight with your shoulders back, you know, treat yourself like you're someone responsible for helping. It's like, I know perfectly well that those can be read as cliches. The question is, a cliche, let's say, is something that's so true that it's, that it's become, um, that it's become, it's widely accepted by everyone. Well, but we don't know why it's true anymore. And so... This, this issue, this, the issue that we're talking about here, the issue of being a good sport, we need to figure out why that's true. And the reason that it's true is that you're trying to push your development farther than you've already developed at every point in time. And now that's the proper, that's the proper moral attitude. So, when you see an athletic performance where someone is pushing themselves beyond what they are, you see someone dramatizing the process of proper adaptation. It isn't the skill itself, it's the extension of the skill. And when you see someone acting like a bad sport, then they're sacrificing that. And so they're sacrificing the higher for the lower, and no one likes that. In the fights, it's got to be... See, the question is, that's the thing I can't quite figure out, is why that would be even exaggerated in a fight situation. And you said it's because the stakes are so high. Yeah, the consequences of victory or defeat, they're, they're just so much greater. There's... The, your your health is on the line. It's one of the rare things that you do where your right. your health is on the line, your physical health. Right. So there are Someone, more extreme victories and more extreme yes, defeats. And so more. the morality that's associated with defeat is more extreme. Exactly. Because there's more on the line. Yeah, exactly. yeah, that makes sense. And makes the sense. the way people treat the champions, it's it's a it's a very different thing. It's the the respect and adulation that a champion receives is it's the pinnacle of sports in terms of uh, the, the love from the audience when someone wins a, a great fight. It's, there's nothing like it. And this is one of the reasons why these people are willing to put their health on the line. Because that high, the high of victory, and it's not just a victory. It's, uh, you know, what, what is the, who was it who, who said the victory is really the victory over the lesser you. It's right. the victory That's over... That's always the victory. Yes. Yeah. It's, the victory is over... You've you got to realize, a guy like Stipe Miocic, who uh, defends his heavyweight title this weekend in the UFC, he is, uh, he's the heavyweight champion of the world, but he's not undefeated. <clears throat> he, he lost in his career. He's lost a couple of times. And he, you know, is, I'm sure he's lost wrestling matches and sparring sessions in the gym. and all. He's a product... Of improvement right he's a product of discipline and hard work and thinking and strategy and constantly improving well, upon his skills and so so in because of that he's the baddest man on the planet okay, so my so I'll tell you another story about that so when I lived in Boston I had little kids and uh, 
my wife took care of some neighborhood little kids because she didn't have a green card and that was she was home with the kids anyways and anyway she took care of some other little kids one of them would only eat hot dogs that was quite funny he'd only eat hot dogs at his mother's place but at our house he ate all of his lunch and he was perfectly happy about it so I thought that was quite amusing too but anyways one day a neighbor came by and the neighbor had a four-year-old child and the neighbor was looking for someone to take care of the child because her nanny had been in a car accident and couldn't take care of the child temporarily so the child had sort of been circulating around neighborhood houses for a couple of days and you know people were taking care of him and then he ended up at our house and um, which was fine and so he's a cute little guy and uh, his, the mother came to the door eh, and she said she's you know pushed the boy in and he was kind of like this he wasn't very happy and um, she said he probably won't eat all day but that's okay and I thought, hmm, that's a, that's a remarkably interesting statement to, you know, to, to put forth as a proposition the first time we meet your son. It's like, he won't eat all day, which by the way is not okay, it's not okay, and you're going to tell us that it's okay, and you're going to expect that we're just going to accept the fact that you think it's okay. And that's, that's the whole story, you, you deliver all that information in one little sentence. So I thought, well, that's pretty damn peculiar. Uh, I believe she was a psychologist too, which was quite interesting. <laughs> so, okay, so that's fine. So I went out to do something, and there was four kids playing in the house. And when I came back, the little guy was in the porch, like where the boots were and everything. And he was sort of standing there like this. And I thought, hmm, that's not good, because there's all these other kids. Like he should have been in there playing, eh? That obviously, that, that's what a child is primed to do. He should have been in there messing about with, I think there was a two-year-old, and a three-year-old, and another four-year-old he should have been in there, you know, causing trouble and having fun and playing but he wasn't, he was standing in the porch like this and he wasn't happy, he wasn't happy so, I looked at him for a bit and then I poked him a couple of times because I thought, you know, if you're interacting with little kids they're very playful, eh? they're kind of like puppies and so if you, if you tease them a bit and tickle them a bit then usually, even if they're crabby, you know, a smile will break out despite their best efforts and then they'll sort of giggle and maybe, you know, they'll try to whack you away and, they, you know, they, they go into a play routine and although you may not know it, mammals like us have a play circuit you know, so, so we're intrinsically playful, which is partly why we can get along with dogs because of course dogs are intrinsically playful and most people know how to play with a dog and you know when a dog wants to play, right? because it sort of puts its paws down and looks up at you and sort of grins and puts its tail in the air and goes like this, it's like clue in primate, you know it's, <laughs> it's time to engage in some playing and you know, you basically you know how to do that and even the dog knows how to do that so I'm poking this kid and trying to get him to smile but there's no damn way, you know I'm poking him, he's just ignoring me like mad and I thought, that's not good, you know because you don't want your four-year-old to have learned that you should, you should that it's okay to ignore adults or that you should ignore adults or that you can ignore adults that's all bad because the world's full of adults and they know a lot of things and they control all the resources and so you better get along with them plus, you're going to end up as an adult for most of your life so if the general, you know, if the first rule is adults can and should be ignored then what the hell are you headed for, you know? and it's one of the reasons that it's really useful to make sure that children respect adults because they're going to be adults so if they don't respect adults then of course they don't have any respect for what they're going to be. Why the hell grow up? You end up like Peter Pan. 
Because that's what Peter Pan's about, right? Peter Pan wants to stay in Neverland with the lost boys where, where there's no responsibility because, you know, he looks at the future and all he sees is Captain Hook a tyrant who's afraid of death that's the crocodile, right? that's chasing him with the clock in his stomach and it's the same thing as this dragon so, you know, kids have to respect adults it's, you're doing them a disservice if they don't so, okay, so fine, I'm poking this kid, there's just no damn way, I'm not getting anywhere with him and I thought, this isn't good, there's something deeply wrong with this little kid so that's fine, so then we sit all the kids down for lunch and the rule is, eat your damn lunch and be thankful for it because, you think about this Leonard Cohen wrote this song once about, I don't remember the song particularly but he talked about the homicidal bitching that goes down in every kitchen about who's going to serve and who's going to eat it's like if you haven't encountered that, then there's something terribly wrong, you know so, because a lot of the tension in, in households is domestic tension the tension between husbands and wives, say, or husbands, wives and children it's like, just who the hell is going to do the domestic duties? and how and when? and the answer can't be, well, we're not going to do them because then, you know, you eat Cheetos and popcorn and, you know for the rest of your life, and that's not good. It's got to the point in, in England, because the domestic situations have deteriorated, the rituals have deteriorated to such a point that about one third of families no longer have a dining room table. And you can buy pre cooked, hard boiled eggs. Yeah, yeah, right. You know, it's not a good thing. And you might ask yourself, why the hell everyone is either fat or has an eating disorder? And, you know, part of the reason is, is that the entire domestic routine around regulating food intake has disappeared. That's a terrible thing for people because we're social eaters. So you might say, well, if you sit down with a bunch of other people at a table, how much should you eat? And the answer is, you should eat on average what everyone else eats. And that's exactly what you do, even if you don't notice it. You know, people are so wired into. We, we did experiments like this. If you if you bring un, uh, if you bring undergraduates who don't know each other into a lab, and you give them a snack while they're doing something like watching a movie, they will eat the same number of chips. So you know, if one of them eats the whole half the thing, the other will eat half. If one only has one, the other will only have one. The correlation between the food intake between the dyads was about 0.8 it was staggering it seemed to be a little higher for extroverts than for introverts but it was remarkably, remarkably concordant and you can understand why, right? because human beings share food it's like, you are not going to be a popular tribes person if you eat, you know, 30% of the food when food is in short supply you better be bloody awake and make sure that you don't take more than your share and, you know, it's a fundamental element of human nature to do that, and, you know, and we also regulate our sense of satiety by cues that are external to us so regulating our food intake, also because we're omnivores, turns out to be a tremendously difficult thing and, well, anyways, back to this kid, so we bring all the kids to the table and they're sitting around and they're having lunch and the rule is, as I said, eat what is in front of you and be pleased and happy about it, so you might say, well, why would that also be a rule? it's like, okay, put yourself in this position now, because you'll be in this position you're going to cook your damn kid some lunch and you're going to do that, well, let's, let's calculate it out because I like doing arithmetic so, let's say it takes you half an hour a day and you do it seven days a week, but we'll multiply that by three because there's three meals, so it's an hour and a half a day, right? so, okay, fine, seven times an hour and a half is roughly ten so it's 10 hours a week, it's 40 hours a month, right? 40 hours a month is a full work week so, 40 hours a month times 12 
12 full work weeks, right? Yes? That's three full months of 40 hour days of cooking something for your damn kid. Now, that's a lot of time, and then you're going to do that for 18 years. So then you might ask yourself, what sort of response do you need from your child in order to not feel resentful and miserable about the fact that you have to do that for three bloody months this year? You know, you just have to think about this. And this is also why it's necessary to know that inside yourself you carry a monster just like the world outside you carries a monster. Do not think that you're going to be able to maintain a healthy attitude towards your child or towards food or towards yourself if all you can muster up for the effort of cooking and preparing food is the attitude of a slave and continual punishment from the people that you're offering food to. It's like, who the hell wants that? So you want to teach the miserable little blighter that he's lucky that there's any food there at all and that the proper attitude is to say, really, thank you very much, mom, or thank you very much, dad. I'm glad that you produced something. And then, you know, you can be all happy about the fact that you were, you know, slaving away in the kitchen and you can like your kid. So, and you know, you might think, well, everybody likes their kids. It's like, yeah, right. No, that's not true. That's not true. And now and then, you know, you read in the newspaper about someone who's, you know, being pushed a little bit too far on some day that they're unemployed and hung over and, you know, their relationship is just broken up and they do something absolutely brutal to their child. And you think, well, how could anyone do that? It's like, there's a lot of history of terrible interactions between the mother and the child or the father and the child before something like that happens. So, you know, if you want to protect your child against the beast that's inside you, you might want to teach them to treat you with some respect so that you're much more likely to be a civilized human being around them. So, alright, so anyway, so this kid's sitting there, and there's no damn way he's going to eat anything, eh? So, we decide we're going to feed him, which I'm an expert at, because my, my son, the one who said no all the time, he was the most stubborn little cuss you could possibly imagine. And one time when he was about nine months old, he got a hold of the spoon. And it was like he was not going to be fed anymore, eh? So that's fine, good, you know, it's like feed yourself, but no. Kids, eh, they're too damn curious and playful really to feed themselves. So you sit them in a high chair and then, you know, they fling the food onto the floor because that's pretty cool. And they can watch that over and over, you know, or they mess around with it or maybe they, you know, put some in mum's hair because that's interesting too. And they have two or three bites and then they're not ravenous and then they're much more interested in playing. And that's fine, except that if the kid doesn't eat, then it gets crabby and, you know, whiny and miserable, and then it dis disturbs the mother or the father, and then it won't sleep at night, it's like, that's no good. So, after about three days of that, I took the spoon back from him, and he was not happy about that, man. Trying to get that little kid to eat, once I got the spoon, it was like a four-hour battle. It was really remarkable, so, I, 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 I had a lot of respect for his ability just to withstand stubbornness, you know, but I'd learned by that time, as a parent, that, like, if you want to discipline your child, you, there's an attitude you have to take, which is, I am going to win this. Like, I don't care how stubborn you are, I am going to win. And because I know I'm going to win, I'm not going to get angry. I'm just going to out-stubborn you. And so, so I take up some food and put it in front of him, he'd go like this. So, that was a good trick. And so I try to get the food in there, and his teeth were gritted, so I poke him. You know, poke, 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 and after about ten pokes, he'd get annoyed and go, ah, and I'd put the food in. And then he'd try to spit it out, so I'd hold it in. And so then, so that was like three minutes, you know, and then we did it with another spoonful. And, you know, after about, I'd say an hour of this, my wife had to leave because it was like she just couldn't handle it. And about an hour after this, he decided that, you know, it was okay. And then, 
he would let me feed him. But like it was brutal, and <laughs> and it was amazing. I mean, little kids are so damn tough. You know, they're really cute and everything, and but they're so tough. You just can't believe it. So, anyways, so we had this kid at the table, and he was not going to eat. So. My wife, who'd learned these tricks by this time, decided to feed him. And he had a lot of sort of nine-month-old or eight-month-old behaviors. Because, you know, kids have different strategies of resistance if they don't want to do something. And those strategies get more sophisticated as they get older. But, and he had some strategies, but they weren't sophisticated. You know, like he didn't make jokes or knock the spoon away or, or get angry or, or run away or any of those things. He did kind of nine-month-old things, which means he just put his head down. And when she put the spoon towards him, he just averted his head one way or another. So, so that was interesting because I knew that his parents had given up feeding him when he was about eight or nine months old because those tricks worked. And so that's why she could come to the house and say, he probably won't eat all day, but that's all right. Which it isn't. It's not all right. So, fine. So my wife is trying to feed him and he doesn't open his mouth. So she pokes him a bit and sooner or later he gets mad and you know, goes, ah, and she puts the food in. And, she does, and then she pats him on the head as soon as he swallows it and says, look, you're being a really good kid, you know, you're doing a good job. And then, so he's wondering what the hell's going on. And then it was so interesting because she kept feeding him and he was still doing this. But as she patted him on the head, he'd be doing this and he'd open his mouth. So it was like there was this weird conflict between his habitual behavior and this thing that was being reinforced. So then she'd, you know, put the food in and pat him and he'd, you know, he'd be kind of happy about that. And then he'd go back to his routine. And then she did that for, I think, about 20 minutes. It wasn't disruptive, like all the other kids ate. They didn't even really notice what was going on. It wasn't, it wasn't a big deal, you know. But I was watching because I knew something was up because the stupid thing that his mother said and then the fact that he wouldn't play. And he ignored me. I thought, no, no, there's something really not good here. There's a dragon here, and it's a big one. So, she feeds him, and then he finishes the whole bowl. It's like, and she says, you're a good boy, you ate the whole bowl. And Jesus, you should have seen what happened to that kid, man. It just about broke my heart. Like, really? Like, his eyes got big, and he smiled, and he was just like, he was super thrilled, because he'd finally accomplished this absolute basic necessity that he hadn't mastered in four years. He finally got it right. And you think of all the meals that he went through, either being ignored or failing three times a day for like three years. Nothing but failure and bad responses. And, you know, he'd internalized all that. He thought he was a bad kid. And then all of a sudden, poof, he figured this out. And, you know, he got a little reward for it. It was like he just lit up. And that whole shell that he had on that, that he was, like, using to protect himself when he was in the porch, that just melted away. It was like... It was horrifying and amazing at the same time. And then he followed my wife around after that in the house, just like a puppy dog. Like he wouldn't get, he would not get more than one foot away from her. It was unbelievable. And then we went downstairs to watch like a movie with the kids. And she sat on a rocking chair and he climbed right up on her lap and grabbed her. Just like that Harlow monkey grabbed the, you know, the little soft mother instead of the wiry mother. He was like this and he was like that for like two hours. He wouldn't let her go. So then the mother came home, his mother came home and she came downstairs and she looked at what was going on, you know, and this kid was like <coughs> glommed on to my wife and she looked at her and she said, oh, super mom, and you know, took her kid and went home. It's like, Jesus, like if you don't think there's a dragon in that story, man, you're not listening to it. It was not good. And her response at the end was terrible. She should have said, well, how'd you get him to eat? It's like, and what, what the hell is he doing, like, 
hugging you, he never does that to me no way man, she wasn't going to let that piece of information in and it's no wonder, because the dragon in that story was her and it was something she did not want to admit and she was willing, perfectly willing to sacrifice her child to that, to her failure to realize that she could be a dragon so that meant that the child was the problem and that's a hell of a thing to do to a four year old so, it was not pleasant it was really not pleasant in fact, we probably did damage to the child by actually getting him to do something good eh? because we opened up him up to the possibility that he could behave properly and be rewarded for that and that gave him hope and so you can bloody well be sure that that hope was dispensed with the next day